I always hate cutting fellowship time short, but if you would all make your way back to your seats. And go ahead and have a seat for a minute. Yeah, everyone can sit down. Well, welcome this morning. My name is Scott Cottrell. I'm one of the elders here at Redstone Church. And I was asked by Spencer if I would be willing to preach. With this series in Luke that we are calling Realia, the messages kind of reached a climax with the parable of the great feast, which Spencer used to cap our 10-year anniversary over the last two weeks. So we've had two messages from this passage already. Well, we're going to do something, if you'll bear with me, probably that's never been done in the history of Redstone Church, and that is I'm going to preach from that same passage for a third week in a row. All right, all right. Hopefully with a little bit different uh, perspective and focus. Now we know that Jesus taught using parables, which are stories that come alongside to illustrate a point. They're found throughout all the Gospels. However, as we get closer to the end of Luke, Jesus' parables become, it seems to me, more lengthy, more involved, and perhaps a little bit more pointed, specifically in those occasions when he interacts with the Pharisees. The truth often hits us harder when it comes through a story form, and Jesus is able to use this story to drive home the point that he wants to make. So let's stand, I'll let you stand again, as we look once again at Luke 14, verses 12 to 24. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he, that is Jesus, said to him, You know, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry, and he said to the servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. 
And the servant said, sir, what you've commanded has been done, and there's still room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my feast. Let's say together what's found in your bulletin. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. So I'm the newest elder, and I hope this doesn't mess things up, but I've got a confession to make. I am a party animal. I know. It may not be hard for some of you to understand or believe, but for others, I'm sure it is. I love parties and entertaining. When we first moved to this part of the country 20 years ago, we met and made friends with a family who literally had a different family over to their house for dinner every single night of the week. And I remember thinking, man, I want to be just like that. But of course, that lifestyle is totally unsustainable for, for all of us, my family included. But when I read in the Bible a passage that deals with partying, I get excited. But there's something here I don't want you to confuse, and that is this parable of Jesus is not a New Testament version of the New York Times etiquette guide for how to throw a successful party. It's not focusing on who to invite and who not to invite. But what Jesus does is give instruction that goes contrary to the accepted practice of his day. There are at least three points that Jesus is making about this feast, and by extension, a feast that is still to come. And those points are, number one, who is invited? Number two, who will not be invited? And three, what does this have to do with us? Before I explain this, the teacher in me wants to give you some historical background, so please bear with me. Jewish culture has a much higher standard for hospitality than we do. Strangers and visitors are always invited for a meal and lodging, and if you hold a dinner, it was customary to invite people who are useful to you, including your friends, and especially people who are wealthy or who are deemed important. You see, the expectation is that they, in turn, will invite you to their next dinner party. However, Jesus went against the conventional wisdom of the day in his comments to the host. He tells them not to invite their friends, brothers, relatives, or rich neighbors, but instead to invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And by doing so, you will be blessed, he says, because they cannot repay you. We read in verse 1, Jesus went into one of the Pharisees' house to eat bread on the Sabbath. Now, the Pharisees, they were very curious about Jesus. He was doing things that just defied their imagination. And for his part, Jesus tried 
to correct their wrong understanding about God and the law. There were many in Israel at this time who were poor, lame, blind, or crippled. And they were despised and held in contempt by their leaders. While in contrast, Jesus focused his ministry on ministering to those despised and contemptible people. Why were the poor, lame, blind, and, and uh, sick so despised? Well, because religious Jews at that time considered these types of people to be sinners who were outside of God's blessing. They believed that the sin was the cause of their adversity, the people's personal sin. They thought that prosperity and blessing were God's signs to those who were religiously devout. If, you, if anyone here has ever read the book of Job, even Job's friends said to him, Job, if you were pure and upright, surely God would prosper you rightly. In John chapter 9, when Jesus healed the blind man, his own disciples asked him, if this man's blindness was caused by his sin or his parents' sin. And this was how adversity was seen by the Jewish people in this era. But Jesus made it abundantly clear to his disciples, just as he was making it clear to the Pharisees here in this story, that adversity was not the necessary result of personal sin. In fact, Jesus told these religious leaders that they themselves would be blessed at the resurrection for treating the poor, lit, sick, lame, and blind with blessing rather than by ignoring them. In other words, if they wanted God's blessing, then they should treat those whom they had previously despised with blessing and respect. They weren't expecting to hear that. What transpired next was even more surprising to the Jews. We may think that this comment that's kind of thrown in out of left field is totally unrelated to what's happening, but it's not. It's actually central to the focus of the passage. One of the guests introduces a new subject. In the middle of the dinner, he blurts out, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Isn't there always someone who tries to make himself look good by interjecting something that sounds spiritual? <laughs> There's a book that I recently read by Kenneth Bailey entitled Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And he says that when Jesus answered this statement, he was actually participating in a conversation that had started 700 years previously in Isaiah 25 verses 6 to 9. This is what Isaiah said. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, and of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, 
And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God, we have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. You know, it's ironic that Jesus was the very fulfillment of this prophecy and the bread that they would eat. And these Pharisees didn't see it. So the man who shouts this out is actually challenging Jesus to explain his views to all of them about that feast. Now again, a little bit more history. Back in Genesis, God promised Abraham that he would become the father of many nations and he would be a light to the Gentiles. God always intended that salvation would be for people from every tribe and nation, not just for the Jews. And this is echoed in this Isaiah passage. However, after the Babylonian exile, perhaps because of their bitterness over the exile, the Jews adopted an extra-biblical belief that all Gentiles would be rejected by God. Even though this was actually against what the Bible had taught. In fact, one of their views, some of them taught, was this. That God would lure the Gentiles to the feast only to slaughter them there when they arrived. And that then faithful Jews would have to wade through their blood on their way to the feast. Yeah. Wow. What a perversion, huh? Jesus' teaching in this parable presented a vastly different scenario. He spoke of people coming from the east, west, north, and south, and how quite surprisingly, many religious Jews themselves would be excluded. Can you imagine how this upset the Pharisees' understanding of the Gentiles? This would have set their teeth on edge. To get perspective, let's imagine this parable as one of our modern dinner, dinner parties. As the host or hostess, that's what you're going to be here, you prepare a guest list and then you prepare a menu accordingly. You send out invitations and the guests start sending their RSVPs back. Based on the responses, you procure the food and you start preparing the meal according to the guest list. Let's say it's a large dinner party and you don't want any guests to go away hungry so you over-prepare, you over-fix the food. It's going to be lavish, okay? And as the guests start to arrive, you notice that three notable invitees don't show up. In fact, they send along their last-minute excuses. What would you do? Well, of course you'd be irritated, right? To say the least. Their inconsideration has upset your entire dinner plans. Your seating arrangement, arrangements and your lavish meal are upset by their absence. And undoubtedly, if their excuses aren't good enough, you'll write them off of any future guest list that you draw up for another dinner party, right? 
So let's now look at the three excuses given in the parable. The first guest says he just purchased a piece of land and must go inspect it. Sounds reasonable, right? Well, who would buy a piece of property sight unseen? It would not have been a spur-of-the-moment thing. This, this invitee was insulting the host and saying, I've changed my mind, and my business is more important than coming to your banquet. The second guest says he just purchased five yoke of oxen and must go examine or test them. Again, does that sound reasonable? No one's answering. You must know the answer, right? It's not reasonable. Different draft animals pull differently. They're always teamed together based on their size, their pulling ability, and their endurance. This, they would have already been paired up and sold as a pair that were already tested. This excuse is like saying, you know what, I just bought my new dream Lamborghini and I'd rather go out driving it than come to your party. Again, this was insulting to the host, saying that my possessions are more important than your party. So we come to the third excuse. The third guest says he just got married and he can't become, can't come because of his duties to his wife. Now maybe like me, you remember this obscure passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24 that says that when a man takes a new wife, he's not required to go to war or to work for a year. The problem is that injunction would not have covered this dinner party. In essence, what this third man is saying is that he planned to stay home and have an intimate evening with his wife rather than attend the dinner that he had already committed to. In fact, this is perhaps the most insulting excuse of all because he didn't even ask to be excused. He just declared, I'm not coming. You know, the idols that get into our way, get in the way of our commitment to God, almost always fall under those three categories. Business, personal possessions, and family. Do you see why the host was so angry and insulted? He went to great pains to, ho to host this feast, and three of his guests have just insulted him by saying that they had better things to do. How did he respond? Well, although he was angry, he responded with grace. But instead of directing the grace toward those three, he directed it elsewhere. He sent his servant out into the streets and lanes nearby to invite other guests. Which, based on Jesus' previous comments earlier in this passage, you can just take this to mean that he sent them out to the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. The servant came back and said there was still room. So the master instructs him to go further afield into the highways and hedges and compel more people to come in. What does compel mean? Well, a dictionary definition says it means to force someone to do something. Jesus then concludes the parable by saying, 
And this is the key for understanding what he's saying to the Pharisees, that none of those who were originally invited and refused to come would taste his banquet. Note that the streets and lanes are nearby. These are the neighbors of the same nationality, and it refers to the poor, the sick, the lame, and the blind people whom the Pharisees held in contempt and despised. But when he sends the servant out into the hedges and highways, that says he's going outside of Israel. In other words, this parable is saying that the Gentiles are being invited to the feast. So who will be invited to the feast? The answer is the poor, the lame, the crippled, the blind, in other words, the humble, but also the Gentiles. Who will not be invited? The meaning would have been so clear to the Jewish leaders. Jesus was saying that they were the ones who were making excuses and the ones who would be excluded from the kingdom banquet. And instead, the very ones that for hundreds of years the leaders had looked down their noses at and thought were unworthy to be included in the kingdom of God, you know, the lame, the sick, the poor, the blind, and also the Gentiles, would be invited in their place. In a later chapter of Luke, chapter 18, Luke describes the Pharisees as those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. This is what Jesus was addressing in this passage. The Pharisees were righteous in their own eyes. They held to their own interpretation of Scripture, and they despised everyone else who was outside of their club. Jesus was showing them how wrong they were, and I can tell you, they were not happy about what he was saying. This was a clear call for repentance. Did they heed it? Did they heed it? Some did. After Jesus' resurrection and ascension, many of the new converts we read about in the book of Acts were scribes and Pharisees. But by and large, the, the majority of Jewish leaders rejected the gospel. Their faith was still grounded in their own works and their own interpretation of the law. In fact, much of the controversy in the early church about whether Gentiles were required to observe the law came from this quarter, from the, these Jewish legalists. So now we get to my third point. How does this apply to us? I'd like to ask each of us a question. How different are we from the Pharisees? Do we think that we have the inside track on salvation because we identify as Christians? Do we think that simply believing the right things puts us in right standing with God? Do we ever find ourselves looking at others thinking, there's no possible way this or that person would ever be allowed into the kingdom of God? <coughs> Excuse me. You know, like drug addicts, prostitutes, thieves, or people who identify as LBGDQ+. Do we believe that there are people who are so far gone that they're beyond redemption? Do we see our own good works in obedience to what we think God requires as somehow making us more worthy of the kingdom of God than these others? 
Please don't think that I'm pointing the finger just at you guys. I'm pointing the finger at myself as well. If we are thinking any of these things, then we're more like the Pharisees than we are true disciples of Jesus Christ. Whenever you look at the Pharisees and find yourself amazed at their stubborn blindness, then you you need to stop and examine your own life and see where the hardness of your own heart might be interfering with things. Have you allowed your own heart to grow cold and harden to what God is doing around you? Every person, every person is created in God's image, and therefore they're not beyond God's grace. Who are we to think otherwise? After all, what if the person who shared the gospel with you had instead thought, there's no way he or she will ever come to faith in Christ, so I'm not even going to bother sharing the gospel with them. Or do we only invite people to church or into our home who are attractive, well-dressed, courteous, prosperous, important, and then disregard the homeless or the dirty, the immoral or the addicted? You see, without Christ, we are the contemptible people who are despicable. In Revelation 3, Jesus' words to the church of Laodicea were this, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered and need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Slap my face. Maybe we don't even know anyone who isn't a believer. Our, narrow, our focus is so narrowed. Instead of keeping ourselves separated from unbelievers, we should reach out to anyone God places in our lives and actively befriend them. By doing so, we'll be acting just like Jesus. By not telling others about the hope they can find in Christ, what we're really saying is one of two things. First, either we don't really believe the gospel, or two, we don't care what pleases Jesus. But when you do share the gospel with someone who doesn't know Christ, you have the opportunity to share the good news that Jesus made in your life and also could make in theirs. Do you all know who John Newton was? He, one of the most famous conversions in history. He was a man who was a former slave trader who got converted, accepted Christ, became a pastor, and he's the author of the hymn that we all sing, Amazing Grace. He said something that parallels the points of my message. He said that when he gets to heaven, he'll be confronted by three wonders. The first is to see many people there that he didn't expect to see. The second wonder would be to miss many people that he did expect to see. And the third and greatest wonder of all would be to find himself there, which is wonderful because God actually would choose us to be his own. Perhaps you're here, you might be a visitor, I don't know, and you don't know Jesus personally. I don't know your reasons. 
Maybe the idea of faith in a man who died so long ago seems outrageous. I want to assure you that Jesus not only died, but he was resurrected three days later. He came out of the tomb and he walked with his disciples for 40 days before ascending into heaven and to take his rightful place with God the Father. He's coming again at the end of the age, just like the prophecies of Isaiah in this parable indicate, and he's going to set up his eternal kingdom here on earth. I'd love to see you there. Maybe, another reason would be, maybe you think that your life is just fine the way that it is. You're perfectly happy without God in it. Well, you know, life is full of trials and troubles, and when that happens, you'll probably find that you don't have the resources or the strength to face them alone. One of the things that Christians find great comfort in is the promise that God will never leave us or forsake us. The problems may not go away immediately, but we don't have to face those problems alone. And in fact, we usually see that there's a purpose in them that God uses for our good. Wouldn't you rather have that comfort as well? A third reason is maybe you've been disappointed by people who claim to be Christians but don't live like they believe their own words. We call those what? Hypocrites, right? I can understand that because as a Christian, it's embarrassing to realize how many times our own sin, my sin, may have blocked other people from believing. But I urge you not to base your views of Jesus on the failings and shortcomings of others. Judge Jesus for himself. Look at who he said he is and what he did to prove his identity as the Son of God. He came as the only perfect man who's ever lived. He was fully man and fully God. He lived his life without sin. He's the one who sacrificed his own life by dying in your place, in my place, in all of our place. Accept his payment for your sins and choose to live for him instead of for yourself. If you don't know the Lord and it's something you'd like to do, then please come talk to me or someone else here afterwards about starting your life over in Christ. The Bible promises that there will be a great banquet at the end of the age for all of God's people. Remember that passage in Isaiah 25 that I read earlier? Well, Revelation 12, 19, 9 says almost exactly the same thing. It says, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In fact, and this is so cool, the parallel to Luke's parable that we just read is found in Matthew 22. And it refers to this dinner as a marriage feast given by a king for his son. That's what the heavenly banquet is. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb of God, God's Son, with his bride, the church. Before Jesus was crucified, he celebrated a meal with his disciples. 
and he gave it as an example of how we are to remember him and his work by celebrating that same meal regularly. Here at Redstone Church, we celebrate this meal every week. If you're a follower of Jesus, then I invite you to examine your life, make sure that you have no unconfessed sin or issues with anyone else, and come to the table to celebrate what God has done for each of us. If there is something between you and another person, I urge you to go to that person and make it right as soon as you can. We have four stations, two in the back, two up here in the front, that have the elements of communion there. As Christians have been saying for centuries, come, let us celebrate the feast.